you. This is part of our Institute of Biblical Studies uh, called Basic Discipleship. And uh, these truths that we're studying in these days are really core essential values. Uh, I was speaking to some of my grandchildren coming in, and um, I reminded them that their parents, when they were at the age of 12, took this course, and then again as seniors in high school. These are like critical truths that if Billy Graham was correct, that 90 to 95% of the Christians in America really don't understand. And that's why they've remained baby infant Christians. These are truths you want to help someone that you lead to Christ, to embrace your children, your grandchildren. If you have a Bible study, don't assume they understand these truths. Most don't today. And that's why they languish and sputter and fail. So these are very, very important things. This is the first handout. This is the fourth week on topic number one. Some handouts will take one week. Many take three or four weeks. There's a total of 20 handouts by the time we're finished. So we'll be here for a while. I won't teach every single week. Occasionally someone will be in my spot. But for the most part, this is what we're going to be doing for some time out. All right? And we're glad you're live streaming with us. Most of our folks are right now. And I hope you printed out the handout. You'll find it very, very useful. Tonight you have the complete handout. Unfortunately, the one you have still has a few typos in it. The one I have is typo-free, and my grandkids have the typo-free one. Just couldn't get it up in time with all the corrections in light of VBS and everything else that needed to be done today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're thankful this week for Vacation Bible School, for our children as they are meeting in homes and neighborhoods and various places at different times in the day, some even in the evening hour. And we are grateful for those who work so hard to put together just a superb curriculum. Use it in the lives of our children and their neighborhood friends and others that will be exposed to the material and even other churches that are already using it. We uh, commit our need to you tonight as we open your word. Uh, We come with a deep sense of dependence on you to help us to understand truth. And so, Lord, teach us tonight. Help me to be clear in the things that you've put in my heart to say And may we, um, by the things we learn, be changed and more in love with Jesus. And we ask it in his holy name. Amen. All right, uh, page two there in your handout, you can see the topic is the eternal security of the Christian. And we have had six objectives in this course, one to distinguish between assurance and eternal security. So there are Christians who say, I know I'm saved. I just don't know I'll be saved five years from now or 10 years from now. So they teach assurance, but not that once you are assured and you've come to a true relationship, that you'll be assured forever. They think you can lose salvation. And approximately 10% of Christians worldwide teach that. It's erroneous. It's false. It's a 16th century doctrine that came into play. Um, But nonetheless, uh, it's one that you will meet, and it's an issue that you need to address. Uh, So we are also uh, talking about Uh, the promises of Scripture that speak to assurance. Uh, Tonight, we're going to look further at number three to be able to state three New Testament evidences for conversion, Um, understand how salvation by grace serves as a motivation to live a godly life, and understand the difference between those who simply say they're Christians, they profess Christ as Lord, but they do not possess Him as Lord. 
So um, we saw by way of introduction tonight that the provision of our salvation, a complete and finished walk, is the reason why we can have assurance. So if you do not believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, as say our Roman Catholic friends do not believe, uh, they issued over 100 anathemas in the Council of Trent. That was reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, uh, and even as recently as the Council of Cardinals in 2010. Uh, so if you do not believe that salvation is by grace alone, and it's not just Catholics that have falsely taught that, some under the banner of Protestantism teach that, then you can never have assurance of salvation, uh, not in a true biblical sense. Now, there are universalists in our day who say everyone's going to heaven, and that represents a large part of Protestants today, more and more, an apostate church. And they say, well, there's not an issue of assurance because there's no issue of hell. Um, but again, we're speaking biblically here. So we went through a number of passages, John 3, a critical one, Romans 3, Galatians 2, Titus 3, Luke 18, and then Luke 23 with the example of the thief on the cross. Then we came to Roman numeral 2 in your outline, the promises for salvation. And we looked at them really in three directions. One, the promises that Christ himself gives that was point A under Roman numeral two. Then we looked at our eternal security from the standpoint of God the Father, uh, that he made many promises in reference to the fact that once we're saved, we're safe forever. And then we looked at the eternal security of the believer from the relationship that we have through God the Holy Spirit, that he comes to indwell us, the moment of conversion, and he is sealed in us for the day of redemption. Um, there are some uh, passages that are unclear passages. There's about 10 in number. Some would say eight um, because you can double count a couple of them and that they're found in more than one place. Um, but they're unclear passages. Most will often bring up to me like a passage like Hebrews 6 or whatever, and I have whole messages on that where I detail it. But a good hermeneutic, a good principle by which you interpret the Scripture is if the Scripture cannot be broken, as Jesus said, if the Scripture is inspired down to the smallest Hebrew letter, a yod that looks like an apostrophe, and the smallest tittle or mark that would distinguish, say, the printed zero, uh, o, letter O and the printed letter Q, that's what a little Hebrew mark is that Jesus refers to in the Sermon on the Mount. If the Scripture is inspired that detailed, then there are no mistakes in it. And so a good principle is you interpret what is very clear in light of something that's unclear. So while you may come to a text and you say, I'm not sure what it means, you can certainly definitively say, I know what it doesn't mean, because dozens and dozens and dozens of times over here, God said it this way. And so we know that these two truths cannot stand side by side. And when you look at those unclear passages, it becomes very clear especially when you look at them contextually, that they're not even unclear in of themselves. All right, Roman numeral three, that's where we are tonight, the proof of salvation. So let me start by just reading the uh, paragraph at the top that will give you the gist of where we are headed. There are many people today who say they are saved. They profess to know Christ, but they have never truly been born again. Our eternal security and our assurance are based not simply on the promises of God as related to the finished payment of Christ for our sins, 
but also by the evidences that a new life brings. If any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away and everything has become new. So as you can see under this section, the proof of salvation, we're going to see point A, a true Christian will have a different lifestyle. B, a true Christian will have the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. And C, a true Christian will publicly identify or confess Christ. So it's somewhat of a three-legged stool. And when you put these together, you can evaluate whether or not someone has really met Christ. Our Arminian brothers, after Jacobus Arminius, who said you could lose your salvation, he was a believer. You'll meet him in heaven someday, but I think he was obviously in gross error in teaching that. They will often say, well, you've got these born-again people who say they're saved, and they're going to heaven, and they're eternally secure, and they just live like the devil. Don't tell me that God teaches that we can be saved, claim to be saved, and have really no change in our life. And I would just say, well, God doesn't teach that. So let's see what he does teach. So first, a true Christian will have a different lifestyle. We'll look at a number of passages. Let's start with the Gospel of John chapter 5. John 5, and we'll look at a couple of verses there. John chapter 5, and let's um, look, if you will, at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said this, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good, you will see deeds is in italics, meaning it's not a part of the original text. It's not there for emphasis as in modern day English. Since the Bishop's Bible, we've put italics in the English Bible to indicate what words are not part of the original Greek. But it's implied, those who did the good or the good deeds, you could say, or the good works, some translations say, to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil or the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, Jesus is just plainly taught, if you were here last week, justification by grace alone through faith alone in this very chapter. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has this moment eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's verse 24. And then when he comes here to verses 28 and 29, he describes really two kinds of people. Now, he's not dealing so much with the time of the resurrection as he is with the kind of resurrection. And there's basically two kinds of resurrection. There's a resurrection of judgment and there's a resurrection of life. And those who come to a resurrection of life are those who did the good. Are they saved by the good? No. You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. It shows itself in a changed life. And a life that is not changed is a life that does not display genuine true faith. The life we live demonstrates the faith that we profess. So in a broad sense, Jesus can say those who did the good, those are the true genuine believers that I just mentioned in verse 24, they come to a resurrection of life. Those who did the non-good, the evil, a resurrection of judgment. Turn to Matthew's gospel, turn back to the first gospel, Matthew chapter 7. This is a familiar passage to many of us, and 
Uh, it's part of a sermon that Jesus preached at the top of a, a mount uh, along the Sea of Galilee. We call it since, since the time of Augustine, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's kind of caught that title that he gave it because of its location. And Jesus, um, as he brings his sermon to a close, in verse 13, admonishes us, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's the way they come. The devil doesn't come saying, I am a false prophet and unbeliever. As Paul reminds us, he comes as an angel of light. And if he does, he goes on to say there in that 2 Corinthians passage, so don't his ministers or his servants. Now, someone called on the Bible on on Tuesday asking about Hillsong and uh, Bethel music or Bethel. Um, and I said, well, Bethel, the Bethel church is not a real church. It's a false church. And I went through 10 points where they leave historic Christian doctrine. Like Jesus needed to be born again. Like Jesus gave up his divinity at his birth. Um, just one heresy after another, that it's always God's will for you to be saved that you can get the um, anointing of a prophet by laying over his grave, whether it's a man of God or if you knew where some ancient prophet was buried and you laid on his grave, then that power could come to you. That every Christian has the gift of prophecy. That every Christian can command things to happen. Not ask God, but command things to happen because they say Christ is in you and you can command it to happen. And so for seven days, and I felt terrible for that family, obviously, to have lost a little child. They didn't bury the child for seven days because they were commanding the child to come out of the grave and be alive. I mean, heresy after heresy after heresy. And Hillsong, that has also produced some good music. I'm not saying they haven't. And sometimes if there's the doctrinal smell test, it's solid. But now they are best friends with Bethel, and they preach in each other's pulpits. And so it would be like if Planned Parenthood came into the community, and they wanted to pick up trash on the highway, and they needed some volunteers, and they said, would Community Bible Church join with us, Planned Parenthood, to clean up Highway 280? Not on your life, because they sanctioned the murder of innocent babies year after year after year. And by the way, 40% of the black babies, we talk about Black Lives Matter, they are slaughtered in the Planned Parenthood clinics. 40% of the African-American babies that are conceived. Their original founder was racist, hardcore racist, hated black people. Read Margaret Sanger's works. No, I would never, ever want to do anything with them. So there's a place to separate because... Not only every time a song comes across the screen do we pay a fee to that company for their song, and they take in millions of dollars. That's what the CCLL license is, and Matt has to report where we sing this hymn and that song, and, and then it's all broken down of the funds that we pay, and I don't want to support that kind of nonsense. 
So they come to you in sheep's clothing. That's how they come. And then you've got these innocent kids and say, man, they got great songs. Let's go to their website. Let's listen to their pastor. And so the woman pastor who's sitting on the platform for Hillsong says that the Holy Spirit is sneaky and that he's the color blue and all this weird heretical stuff, just bad stuff. And so there's a place for biblical separation. And it's part of what Christ calls a pastor to do in shepherding and protecting his flock. Beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them how by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Obviously not. So every good tree that bears good fruit, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He's not saying a person can't sin. He taught people sinned. He's just talking about the nature of a tree. We had three bad apple trees in our yard growing up, and this arborist who came in from Italy who knew trees inside and out, he said, Dr. Brogy, tear them down. You're going to waste your time. But my dad had us prune them, spray them year after year after year, and we got rotten apples year after year. Finally, they died, and we planted some good trees that grew. A bad tree can't produce good fruit. Jesus' point is every tree... In the agricultural realm that does not bear good fruit, what do you do? You cut it down, you throw it into the fire. So then you know them by their fruits. The implications spiritually are obvious. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I thought salvation is by grace. It is. But when a person is by grace through faith entered onto the narrow road, their life changes. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform any miracles in your name? And if you want to go online and go to searchthescriptures.org, you can listen to the sermon. And I go through biblical examples where unbelievers do all three of these. So Christ is not dismissing the possibility that an unbeliever can do these because they can. Then I will declare to them. Again, there's this outward sheep's clothing. So they look Christian. They're preaching in his name. They're doing miracles in his name, casting out demons in his name. But I never knew you. Why? You who practice lawlessness. There's still a sinful, rotten tree kind of lifestyle that is being exhibited. Ephesians 2, go to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Ephesians, go through the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and those four short books, go everywhere preaching Christ. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is uh, dealing in chapters 1 through 3 in our, of our position in Christ and 4 through 6 of our practice for Christ. And it's typical structure that he unfolds in a lot of his books. What we believe influences how we behave. So when you come to 4.1, you come to the application. But here in 2, most of us have 8 and 9 memorized, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Um, it, salvation, not talking of faith, but this whole by grace through faith process, because he uses a masculine word, a feminine word, and then a neuter word to combine the words. In other words, the whole by grace through faith process, what we call salvation, is a gift of God. It's not of yourself. It's nothing you pull off. You don't earn gifts, you receive gifts. 
not as a result of works, paraphrased, not a reward for anything you've done so that nobody can boast or brag. Clear, articulate, definitive, not by works, but by grace alone. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by works, but we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. We get our word poetry from it. We're God's poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved onto good works. And so that's the relationship, clear, definitive relationship. Go to 1 John, a fine revelation. If you're new, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the Revelation. And right before Revelation is a little one-chapter book called Jude. And right before that is you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, all right? So 1st John, 1st John chapter 5. Um, this is a promise we looked at last week in reference to the fact that we can know, not hope, wonder, think, but we can know, the Bible says, that we have eternal life. Look at this. It says in the testimony or the witness, you could say is this, that God has given us. We don't earn it. He gives us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So there's no halfway saved. You're either saved or you're not. You either have the Son or you don't. These things I've written to you who believe. And who? In the name of the Son of God. God's name represents all that it stands for, that He's the Savior, the Redeemer, that He is the gospel. When you believe in the name of the Son of God, the Scripture says He's writing these so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we need to ask these things, what things? He's been arguing all the way through 1 John against what we would call pre-Gnosticism. Full-blown Gnosticism doesn't come for another 50 or 60 years after John pens this letter. But the seeds for Gnosticism, which was a heretical group of teachers, are already being sown, and they're entering into the church, and they're confusing people. And again, you know, it's much like the book of Jude says, they sneak in unaware. When someone comes into your church as an unbeliever and they come in unaware, they look Christian, they talk Christian, they profess to be born again. And that's why Jude says you've got to be really careful because false teachers can enter into the church. And that's typically what has happened for every good church that was once solid and became liberal. Somebody wasn't paying attention. And so they cracked the door and they let a false teacher in. And within a matter of time, the church is liberal. So we got churches in this town that say the Bible has errors in it. We have churches in this town that are doing gay marriages. We, you know, churches in this town that deny miracles, once great churches that preach the gospel. What happened? Someone wasn't paying attention. And it can happen to any church, yes, even ours. So we have to pay attention. That's why the Scripture must be faithfully taught. So if you look here, it says the promise of assurance that John promises to us in these verses must be understood in light of these things he has written throughout 1 John concerning the various tests or evidences of true conversion. We cannot fully enjoy our salvation without the confidence that it is really ours, and John wants us to have a true assurance and not a false one. See, that's the thing with the text we just read from Matthew 7. Many are going to claim to be born-again Christians. 
And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but I never, ever had a relationship with you because that's eternal life, right? That they might know you, the only true God. I never knew you. So there are people in the church who think they are saved, and they're not really saved. And so John is not writing to help people who, you know, I'm really struggling with assurance. There's a place for that. But he's writing to people so that they will know for sure that they have the genuine item that we call eternal life. And how will they know that? Because there's some changes that happen when you're born again. And so look, for instance, in 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, I note here, John has written that a Christian has a new fellowship. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, verse 5, that God is light, he's holy, he's pure, he's without sin. In him, there's no darkness at all. If we say, as the false teachers did, we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, that's what they said. We're born again, we love the Lord, and they're living in sin... We lie and do not practice the truth. So again, there's a a change here. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. So you enter into fellowship with God the moment you're born again. You enter into an eternal relationship. The fellowship side can certainly be broken, and we'll discuss that in a latter session. But the relationship cannot. But again, what he's dealing with are people who claim to have fellowship with God, and they were no different. They were continuing to walk in the darkness. Uh, look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. There he's, and I write here, John has written that a Christian has a new obedience. By this we know we've come to know him. What's eternal life? That they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom you have sent. By this we know we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, I'm saved, I'm born again, I'm going to heaven, does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, he doesn't say the one who says, um, the one who's perfect, he never sins. He's just said in chapter eight, if we, of chapter one, verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Verse 10 of chapter one, if we say that we have not sinned, we call God a liar. And that's why saved people need to confess their sins. But he is talking not about perfection, but a new direction. That there's a new direction when someone has been born from above. They have an appetite for obedience. Number C there, 4C, John has written that a new Christian has a new love. Look at chapter 2, verses um, 9 through 11. The one who says he is in the light, born again, and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So again, there's, there's a, a new love, verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and dies not where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Uh, the next one there, John has written that a Christian has a new hatred. He has a new hatred. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. And by the world here, he's not talking about the people of the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So the word cosmos is used in different ways and in different contexts. 
I think that's obvious to most of us. He's talking about the value system of the world. Why? Because the small g of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the evil one, Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's energizing the sons of disobedience. So we're not to love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. And also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Why? Because he's born again. Um, notice there, he, uh, John has written that a new Christian has a new per, uh, perseverance. Look at chapter 2, verses 23 through 27. Whoever denies his son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father. So when you meet someone who says, well, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. No one can come to the Father but through the Son. As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I've written to you uh, concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming." If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of God. So again, there's a, not only a new hatred, but there's a new perseverance. You, you continue to abide in the Lord. Jesus said it a different way in John 15. If you abide in my words, then you are truly my disciples. Um, notice also there's a, a new righteousness, chapter 3. There's many more we could look at. I mean, you can go all the way through the book, just listening a handful. No one who is born of God, number uh, 3, 9, chapter 3, verse 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. doesn't say he doesn't sin, but he doesn't live in a, uh, his, uh, a lifestyle of sin. He further describes it. Listen, because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin, because he's born of God. Now, that's a troublesome verse for people. What do you mean he cannot sin? John, you just said the one who says he doesn't sin is a liar. <laughs> well, his seed doesn't sin. And when you're born again, the seed of God, another designation for the Spirit of God, is placed in your heart. And the Spirit of God cannot sin. He's called the Spirit of holiness. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He makes you holy. He begins to change you. And so because the Holy Spirit lives in you and he cannot sin you'll begin to develop a new lifestyle as you grow in Christ. No one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not, keyword practice. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So there's a new righteousness, there's a new passion, a new obedience for the things of God. All right, so we're, all we're saying here is a true Christian will have a different lifestyle, and that's important. The life we live is always consistent with the faith that we are claiming to embrace. Point B there, a true Christian will have the internal witness of the Spirit. 
So again, initially, someone calls upon Christ in faith, and we tell them, well, God's Word says that if you truly took Him at His Word and you meant what you said, then you're saved. And what did they do often in the New Testament church? They went ahead and baptized the person. They didn't wake a week or a month or a year. They, they baptized them. Yeah, there's a pond over there. Let's go get baptized. They did it the same night, the same hour often. It's what some would call immediate baptism. Now, as the centuries have gone by and baptism has become very confusing to people and what it even means, I think there's a need to make sure there's some definition that is given to it before you just hurriedly baptize someone. But what I'm saying is, is that they would initially say, this person confesses Jesus, so we're going to baptize them. But how do you know if their baptism is really a genuine baptism? Time. Time always shows it. Time will show, well, is their life changed? Do they have a new hunger and appetite for the things of God, the people of God, the commandments of God? If they don't, then it's not real. And another level of assurance that God gives is through the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of us. Look at Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. And um, the, Roman, the book of Romans is the constitution of the Christian's faith in many ways. It's, if there's one book that I suppose every Christian in the New Testament should study, it's the book of Romans. I spent a summer one time as a relatively new Christian, and all I did was study Romans, eight hours a day, the book of Romans. And it changed my life. At the end of the summer, I bled Romans. <laughs> I just was learning so much. And there's so much here in the book of Romans. Um, Romans chapter 8, look at verse 9. He says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So Paul is writing an epistle. It's past the time of Pentecost, several decades. This is why, why you can learn doctrine from a historical book like Acts. It's also a transitional book, and you want to make sure that what you're reading, say, in the book of Acts is not unique to Acts. You can no more reproduce what happened on the day of Pentecost than you could reproduce Bethlehem or Calvary. Those are unique events. And when the Spirit came on Pentecost, He also came with tongues of fire. There was a loud, incredibly rushing sound of a wind, but there was no wind. And people spoke languages that they had never learned before, not fake gibberish like the Hindus do and some of our Pentecostal friends do, but real languages. That was a miracle. But understand, before the day of Pentecost, people could be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because He had not yet been given. But be things begin to change after the day of Pentecost. And there's a couple of exceptions where even after someone heard the message of salvation for God's reasons, like in Acts 8, where the Spirit is given even after they believe post-Pentecost. But that was a unique thing with the Samaritans. But by the time you get to the epistles, it's clear. In him, you also, having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You hear, you believe, you receive. So that's why 
1 Corinthians 12 says, for we have all been baptized by one spirit. So if anyone has ever asked you, have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which some people try to make an experience after you're saved. In historical Pentecostalism said, you get saved, later on you get the Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. That was pure early Pentecostal doctrine. Most Pentecostals don't teach that anymore, but they still teach a second work of grace after salvation, typically associated with speaking in tongues. But God's word is clear. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, Romans 8 9, you're not one of his. You're not saved. He can say that by the time he writes Romans. Why? Because the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit, and he is sealed on you for the day of redemption. He'll never leave you, which again is one of the arguments we saw last time for the security of the believer. Okay, wonderful. Let's drop down to verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What a promise. When you are born again, you receive the spirit of adoption. How do you know the spirit of adoption is in you? Well, there's a new tenderness in your relationship with God. You know, what I often love to see is when a new Christian, he, he receives the Lord and he starts calling God, not Lord or God, or he says, Father. By the way, that's how we're supposed to pray. We don't say just Lord or, or God. We say, Father, when you pray, say, our Father. And there's a tenderness there. And he even uses the term Abba. As soon as you touch the ground, you know, in Israel, or you're on the plane, and you hear all these little Jewish kids saying, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. That's the Hebrew slash Aramaic word for, for what you called your parent, your male parent. And God is saying, you can have a tenderness in relationship, all the psycho babble and nonsense that's entered into the church. Oh, you grew up in a home, your dad was a wicked dad, so you project that wickedness on your heavenly father. That's nonsense. You've received the Spirit of God who causes you to cry out, Abba, Father. He does that internal work, even if your home stunk growing up. But there's a witness of the Spirit. There's a new depth of joy and peace and a closeness with God that as you begin to grow, you see it. You know, initially you hold a newborn baby and they're alive, but they're not all that aware. But time goes on and they start smiling at you and they crawl and they walk and a world opens up to them. And initially, how do I know I'm saved? Well, God said, Jesus paid it all, 100% of my sin. If I would come in faith and receive him to forgive my sin and to, because I'm willing to call sin, sin, we call that repentance, then he would forgive me and give me eternal life. So I know I'm saved. But then there's another level of salvation where you begin to grow and there's an awareness that something's going on here on the inside that I never knew before. 
I remember I was reading this verse one day and I was walking through, it was called the Eagle's Nest at Boston College, kind of an open cafeteria. And I saw my friend and I knew what he was doing. He had this little yellow booklet, it was called The Four Spiritual Laws. And he was taking someone through the plan of salvation and my heart immediately prayed for my friend. Lord, help him as he shares the gospel with that guy who's lost. And as I continued to walk through there up to my dorm, I thought, man, this is really different. A year ago, if I had put two and two together and I saw someone talking to someone about the Bible, I would have called that guy a fanatic. But now I was praying for him. Why? Because the Spirit bore witness with my spirit that there was an internal work that had taken place. And that's a level of assurance no pastor can give you. But the Spirit of God gives you as you grow in Christ. Then point C there on the outline a true Christian will publicly identify or confess Christ. In Hebrews 3.1, it's called our confession of faith. In Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. He's not saying that literally the act of confession saves you. Paul, if you read Romans 10 carefully, he's speaking about, you know, Romans 9, 10, 11 deals with Israel. Romans, book of Romans, real simple. 1 through 8, doctrinal, 9 through 11, national, 12 through 16, applicational. So the doctrinal section, condemnation, justification, sanctification. The national section, Israel, how God chose or elected Israel, why, that's chapter 9, why Israel is in rejection, but how God will restore Israel in the future, that God's not done with Israel, that at the end of time, as Paul argues and quotes from Isaiah and numerous other Old Testament passages, God at the end of time is going to bring Israel to faith. So nine, their, reject, their election, 10, their rejection, 11, their future restoration. So he's dealing with their rejection. Look at chapter 10 of the book of Romans for a moment. Romans 10, brethren, my heart's desire in my prayer to God for them, meaning my Jewish brothers, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that, according, uh, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Hey, there's a lot of folks like that, right? They have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. And we always say, well, you know, how can God overlook that? He's, you know, he seems so sincere, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, and that's really what most unbelievers try to do, right? They try to establish their own righteousness before God by what they do, salvation by works. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God because in their self-righteous spirit, which would have gone against what the Spirit of God would have convicted them of, of sin, righteousness, and judgment, they dug in. It was a form of rebellion against God that they could be right with God by the things that they did. So Paul goes on. He says, hey, let me tell you how close salvation is. I preached the Word of God right into their mouths. It's on their tongues, but it won't do them any good unless it connects to the heart. And when it connects to the heart, they will make confession. With the heart, man confesses unto righteousness. So it's more than just intellectual at that point. The two have come together. And Jesus, uh, go to Matthew 10, he affirms the same principle there. By the way, I have a whole sermon on this in the Roman series, if you want to study that in detail. Um, on confession and all that that embraces. Uh, Rome, uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, and again, I've given you here the parallel passage in Luke. It's almost identical. 
But in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who's in heaven. So Jesus, again, is not going against what he has just taught earlier in this pericope of Scripture, that salvation is by grace and not by works. But he is saying that if you truly inwardly possess him as Savior, then you will outwardly and unashamedly confess him as Lord. And so the outward confession is a result of an inward work. And it's an evidence of salvation. So when you meet people who tell you, well, yeah, this is a private thing for me. Well, it is private in the sense that only you can make the decision. But if you've made the decision, then it's public. And if it ain't public, it ain't real. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. All right, let's talk about some persistent motivations. We, We could spend weeks on these the persistent motivation of salvation. When God saves us by His grace, He keeps us by His grace. It is our new position in Jesus Christ that gives us the ongoing, never-ending, persistent motivation to serve Christ until He comes or takes us by death. Go to the book of Titus. All the books in the Bible that begin with the letter T are found together. Right after Gary eats popcorn, go everywhere preaching Christ. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you have all the T books in the Bible. They go from long to short. Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, longer than Titus. Go to the fifth of those books, Titus chapter 2, and uh, notice, if you will, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, not some men, not only to the elect. All means all. Christ made a provision for all men, period. But are all saved? No. In instructing us, the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructs us. Us who? Us believers. Those of us who've embraced that grace. It instructs us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. For what end? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In other words, when you understand grace, when you truly understand grace, it doesn't motivate you to do wrong and motivates you to do what is right. When you understand that you are unconditionally, eternally accepted in Jesus Christ, and that you have been credited with the righteousness of Christ, and that you can't do anything to make yourself more presentable or less presentable in terms of your position before God, that he has imputed Christ's righteousness to you, that doesn't motivate you to sin. That motivates you to please him. Even when you blow it as a Christian, God still loves me just as much as he did yesterday when I was doing A, B, C, all right? Yes. He loves you, John 17 says, as much as he loves his own son. Romans 5, 8, you know the verse. But God proved, God demonstrated, God commendeth. The Greek word means to show, to establish, to exhibit. God proved his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is sharing some of the reasons that he is motivated to share the gospel with people. And in 5 verses 14 and 15, he says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. Why? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In other words, if I've met the love of God in Christ, what does it do? I don't want to live for myself anymore. And if I'm still just a self-pleaser wanting to do, it just means I've never, I may have been religious, but not born again. Look at 1 John, 1 John, go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, look at verses 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God took the initiative. We didn't do anything. He took the initiative. We were running from God. By nature, we all run from God. I know there are some kids who come in sometimes and they say, I can't remember a time when I just, I didn't like God. That's because you had parents who were praying for you in the womb and that you would meet the Lord at a young age. And, but left to your own, there's none who seeks God, no, not one. God sought you. There's none who seeks God. So it's not that we loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to do what? To be the propitiation for our sins. We saw that that was one of five words earlier in the handout, propitiation, justification, reconciliation, redemption. Those are words, sanctification, that every believer should know. And propitiation, remember, means to appease anger. When it says that God is propitiated, it means he's not angry with us anymore. God doesn't deal with you in anger. Because all of his anger has been poured out in a substitute. Even when God disciplines you, he's not dealing with you out of anger. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He's doing it out of a heart of love because he's propitiated. So it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Drop down to verse 17. By this, the love of God is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Now, John is not dismissing what he taught by illustration and what other New Testament writers and the Old Testament teach by direct instruction that we are to fear the Lord. But he's speaking in this context in terms of our sin, that because God is propitiated and he burned out all of the anger he had against us in a substitute who took that anger, that he now deals with you in love. And perfect love casts out fear. Well, what does the love of God do for us? Look at chapter 5 and uh, drop down to verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and we observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 
and his commandments are not burdensome. Isn't that great? God's commandments are not a burden. Oh, Sunday. I'm supposed to worship with the people of God. How tiresome. No, it's not that way. Unless your heart is just cold and out of fellowship with the Lord. No, they're not a burden. It's a pleasure. I get to go to church. I get to be with the people of God. One of the marks, he said, the things up by this, we know we pass out of death and the life. We love the brethren. So there are things that happen that change us. Let's talk briefly as we bring this in for a landing about pseudo-salvation, pseudo-salvation. I skipped C, didn't I? God's righteousness applied. That's one of our memory verses that we'll give you later on in this course. And I'm going to give you actually a list of 100 verses every Christian should know. And this is one of them. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible under point C, God's righteousness applied. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He, the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, who never sinned, who is perfect, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. The one who knew no sin became sin. Where? On the cross. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. I often illustrate it at Meet the Pastor. I'll say, if this is you and this Bible is Christ, if you are in Christ, he sees you through his son. And unless you have God's righteousness, you will never see the inside of God's kingdom. You need the righteousness of God that's how perfect you must be to go to heaven. And you can't merit that righteousness because our best efforts always fall short. But God imputes and credits that righteousness to us when we come to Christ. Let's talk about pseudo-salvation, point five. Some people become a part of a local church, but they have never truly been born again. For such people, there is no real change of life, no desire to persevere in the faith, and sometimes they will totally renounce Christianity. There's a couple of people who are online, someone showed me last week, and they make fun of me, and, and they used to come here at this church, and one guy who's gay now, and he puts a slash tag or whatever you call those things, hashtag, slash tag, whatever it is, hashtag, you know, CBC Survivor. Like, we're some evil group of people. But he's gay now and renounces the faith. And there's some people who will come into every church who will do that. Oh, and I know that because Jesus said it. The wheat and the tare sometimes will be mixed together into the time of the harvest. The New Testament teaching, notice, on the security of the believer is not based on personal experience or what we observe in other people. It is based on the truth of God's unchanging word. So how do we know if someone has phony salvation? Well, number one, there's no true confession. We just looked at that from Matthew 7. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. We could look at the passage in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? In other words, if you've met Christ, you'll want to obey Christ. So there's no true confession. They say he is their Lord. Lord. 
but their life is not changed, they practice another lifestyle. Or there's no perseverance. We're still in 1 John, so turn over to 1 John 2 and look, if you will, at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. We've been in the last hour or the last days, the Bible teaches, since the day of Pentecost. Now, sometimes, you know, people on a prophetic clock, they, they show a clock and it's five minutes till 12. And we'll say, we're in the last hour and we're just minutes away from the rapture. And it's an interesting concept. But in the truest sense, we've been in the last hour, we've been in the last days, Acts 2 teaches, since Christ ascended into heaven. And so on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came and the miracle happened and people spoke 15 different languages, Peter stood up and said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. So we've been in the last days in the sense that the return of Christ is imminent. He could come at any moment. Nothing has ever needed to be done prophetically for Jesus to come for his people, the church. All kinds of things, as you learned in our study of the Revelation, need to be done for him to come at the second coming, but nothing for the rapture. So in that sense, we have been in the last hour. Now, there's another term called the latter times, that's used by the Old Testament prophets in once in the New Testament that refer to the last of the last days. And it's those events that will precipitate the second coming of Christ. And again, when you see events being set up for the second coming of Christ, since you know the rapture happens before the second coming, you know it's that much closer. And some of the marks at the end of the age will be violence, lawlessness, like the days of Noah, immorality, homosexuality, like the days of Lot, Israel in the land. And there's just a growing spirit of this, not just in these United States, but across the world. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you've heard Antichrist, that one world leader is coming. John didn't deny it. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us. What were they doing with you? They came into the church, just like Jude said. I'm a born-againer. They taught Sunday school, so to speak. ABFs, pastors. They came in as one of their members, deacons. They weren't saved. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. You see what he's saying? He's saying if they were really of us, they would have not renounced the faith. They would have persevered. You're not saved by perseverance, but perseverance is a mark of your conversion. If you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. That's the thrust of 1 John 2, 19. As Matthew 24, he's not dealing with church saints, but the principle applies. He's dealing with tribulation saints in Matthew 24. Go there for a second. It's the Olivet Discourse. And we've seen how in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 4 through 14, perfectly mimics 
one section of Revelation we call the seal judgments. Then there's an event called the abomination of desolation that happens, Daniel the prophet says, right in the middle of the seven years. And the trumpet and bowl judgments perfectly mimic the second half of the Olivet Discourse. By accident, no, not at all. God designed it all that way. So he's describing the events that lead to the kingdom when Messiah will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and rule and reign from Israel for 1,000 years. And during that time, after the church is removed, verse 10, and at that time many will fall away. They'll apostatize and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Now, I think the spirit of lawlessness is growing. And the spirit of Antichrist is prevalent today. But it's going to have its full-blown expression after the church is gone. When the restrainer, God the Holy Spirit, who restrains evil through the church, do you know that churches like this and believers who are listening to me tonight live streaming, you're actually helping to restrain sin in the world? Because you prick people's consciences and people say, you know, what he stands for is really right and we need to be like that. Though they themselves are not unbelievers, but you have that salt and light influence on them. Well, when the church is evaporated and gone in a split second, all that is good on this earth will suddenly be gone and hell will have a holiday and evil will reign like we've never seen it before. And so God will save people and those who come to faith through the 144,000 Jews, through the two witnesses on the Temple Mount, through an angel who preaches the gospel during those seven-year period. Most of them, what happens? Beheaded. They're beheaded. And of course, Jesus said, many false prophets will arise, mislead many, because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You talk about choices. You love Jesus, or do you love Antichrist? I love Jesus. No head. That's the form of execution. He said, beheading, people read this 50 years ago and some mocked, some liberal scholars mocked. I can show you some books where they mock this. They say that went out with the French Revolution. Oh, did it? And we see these Muslims slaughtering born-again Christians on beaches and cutting their heads off. That's just a smidgen of what is in the future. But these tribulation saints who really know Jesus I mean, if someone came in here with a machine gun and said, put it to your head and said, tell me Jesus is God and I'll run you through with this machine gun. You tell me he's not and I'll spare your life. See, the point is, is that those who know the Lord during this time, they will persevere. They will not renounce Christ. And we have an ever-growing number of people under the banner of Christendom that are renouncing the Lord Jesus and what he teaches. No perseverance, no real faith. Look at one text, Luke 8, verse 13. Go to Luke 8, verse 13. James 2.19 talks about the demons who believe and tremble. Luke chapter 8, Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. 
and he gives a translation or an understanding of what he actually meant by the various soils. And Luke gives the most complete account. Verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. Some people can cross a line that they cannot cross back over. They've said no to God so many times, God eventually says, I give you your wish. Only God knows who those people are. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. You say they were saved, but they lost it. No. They believe for a while. Every time you see the word believe, it's not always of genuine faith. Context determines. Classic example, it's on your handout, Acts 8, 9 to 24. I have a whole sermon on it if you want to hear it. Simon the sorcerer. It says that he had believed. But almost virtually when you see the word believe accompanied with the preposition in, then you are seeing a description of real, true, genuine faith. This is someone who believed here, but not here. It was intellectual, but it never touched the heart. And there are people like that who will come to a church. They'll get all excited. They say, there's something here. There's life here. They come down front. They say, I, I've become a Christian. My friend Kevin, that happened to him, and they started making fun of Kevin. Oh, you're going to that church. Heaven, Kevin. Heaven, Kevin. And that's all he could take. I'm not taking this Christian stuff. They believe for a while. And then when trouble comes, you see if it's real and genuine. No change in lifestyle. Two texts and we'll be done. Ephesians 5. Go to the book back of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person, or covetous man, who's an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. My, isn't he clear? Go back to 1 Corinthians, just back a few pages. 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verse, let me just remind you in the chapter, he's talking about church discipline, how there were some folks in the church they should have put out, but they didn't. There's a guy who's sleeping with his stepmother, and Paul says even the pagans find that disgusting. And since you won't do it, I'll do it in spirit, and Paul disciplines him. And then he says in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral person, with immoral people. I did, when, I, when I told you not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. For then you'd have to go out of, the, out of the world. You'd have to leave the planet. They're everywhere. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. He says, I'm a born-again one, but he's immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So what is Paul saying? He's saying what he'll say in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Is my faith real? Is it genuine? 
There are so-called brothers in the church. The next page over, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, that's extramarital sex, nor effeminate, that's a female partner in a gay relationship, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, because God can save anyone. So there's a lot of pseudo-salvation, especially in these last days. Let's bow our heads in prayer and our hearts. Our Father, we thank you tonight for the grace of God that brought us salvation, that it indeed teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. Your amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Thank you for the Spirit who bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God and if children heirs, Thank you for what is out in the future for your people that you have prepared for us, that someday you said you would come for us and take us to where you are, that we might be with you. Thank you that we can call you Daddy, Father. Thank you for the tenderness of a relationship with you. And thank you for the faithfulness of someone who cared enough about our soul to tell us about Jesus. And we care enough about people's souls this week to tell them about Christ. Now, Father, there are many who are sick in our church, some who are suffering with one problem or another of a serious nature, but there's so many to lift up. We pray for our law enforcement officers and many in our church that you've blessed us with. And they are becoming despised by our culture. Father, we know that you've established the family, and the family has fallen apart. You've established the church, and more and more your church has apostatized and left the truth. And the last edge of protection, the government that is supposed to bear the sword to put down evil is being attacked. So we pray for these men and women that serve across our nation, that when they wake up in the morning, they would have a desire and a will to do what they put the uniform on to do. We know there have always been bad cops, just like there are bad preachers and bad everything else. We pray that you would root those people out, but that we might affirm and show honor to our government as you've called us to do. We pray again for our vacation Bible school this week and many even of our own children who are hearing the gospel for the first time, we pray that this would be a fantastic week and a very great time of edification. So we lay it all before you, and we ask you to accomplish this for your honor and glory, and in Jesus' name, amen.